I'm going to start out this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Here in this chapter we read a description of some of David's mightiest warriors that he had enlisted in his army. Starting there in verse 8, it says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshem, Bashhebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite, because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo, the Ahahite. One of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. The men of Israel had retreated, but he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field and defended it and killed the Philistines. And so the Lord brought about a great victory. Down in verse 18, he describes a couple others. He says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against three hundred men and killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so he went down to him with a staff and wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name among these three mighty men. Throughout the Bible, we read about great individuals who accomplished spectacular things, such as these men who are described here. And when we read of such valor and such courage and such great conquest, it it inspires us. And many stories have been written about heroes down through the ages and even superheroes. As of late, it seems that people have kind of become reinvested in the whole superhero thing. We have a lot of different movies that are made these days that focus on these superhuman individuals who have these great abilities and great powers, and they use them to accomplish good defeat the forces of evil, and we are inspired by those stories. 
This morning's lesson is titled, To Be a Hero. I want us to focus our minds for a short while on the only true superhero that exists, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to notice various aspects of who Christ is and what Christ did that I think show us what it means to be a true hero. Because in many ways, we are called to be heroes ourselves. Heroes as we think about being good parents to our children. Heroes as it would pertain to being a good spouse to our husband or wife. Heroes to those around us in our society as to what it means to be a good person. Someone who looks out for the interest of others and especially those who are in need. There's all kinds of different ways that we can be heroes, but primarily we learn how to do that by looking to our example, our Savior, Jesus Christ. A true hero does not concern his or herself with flashy entrances. Now, if you watch any of the modern superhero movies, there's usually a scene somewhere where the hero kind of comes in from the sky and he lands on one knee and he's real epic and he looks up at the bad guy and then this battle ensues, right? There's always this flashy entrance that happens. Jesus shows us that flashy entrances aren't necessary to be true hero. Come with me over to the book of Luke and we read about Jesus' birth into this world and it's anything but flashy. Luke chapter 2 starting there in verse 1. It says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, uh, betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him not on a throne, not with some great parade, with great pomp, but rather laid him in a manger, a feeding trough for the animals because there was no room for them in the inn. And this humble birth would be characteristic of the entire time spent on this earth for our Savior. He was humble and often reminded his followers, despite the fact that he is the King of Kings, that he came to serve. And he came to save us from our sins. 
In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus talks about those that did love to make an entrance. Religious people, quote-unquote, who used their religion as a means to prop themselves up and to be admired by their peers. And he condemns this mentality and reminds us of the need to be humble. Matthew 23, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. They bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. They enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. He says, you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ. You are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. He says, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. If we want to be a true hero, we need to follow the example of Christ. Not be concerned with recognition by men, but we need to primarily be concerned with recognition by God, staying humble. A true hero does not flaunt their powers for self-glory, and that in some senses ties in with what we were just speaking to. Come with me over here to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. And again, we read concerning our Savior. Philippians 2, we'll start in verse 3 there. Paul instructs those in Philippi, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus certainly displayed his power in a number of ways, especially during his ministry. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He walked on the water, did all kinds of things to demonstrate who he was. Ultimately, he rose from the grave on the third day. But notice, despite those miracles that he performed, he made himself of no reputation. And he took the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so, therefore, God has 
highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow to those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus could have come to this earth and he could have used his powers to gain notoriety. He could have set himself up as a king. You remember when he was tempted there by Satan in the wilderness that one of those temptations was, look, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms of men, right? Just bow down to me. And if Jesus would have taken those for himself, he would have, in essence, been doing that very thing, right? Bowing down to our great adversary, giving in to selfish ambition and and pride. But he didn't use his power that way. Rather, he used it to demonstrate God's love, to lead people to knowing God. That was his mission. In Romans chapter 12, we are encouraged to think similarly in regards to the gifts that we are given. And we all have gifts. And we might not be able to fly or shoot lasers from our eyes or things of that nature, but we all have abilities that God has seen fit to bless us with. We know, of course, in the early church, they had some miraculous abilities through the Holy Spirit. But the words that we're about to read apply to us even today. We'll start there in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. And so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it for ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The point being that we use our gifts with each other in mind and with God in mind. That he would receive the glory and that others would be benefited. A true hero wields a mighty weapon. Captain America has his shield. Thor has his mighty hammer, right? All these different superheroes have some kind of weapon that they utilize to help them accomplish good things. And Jesus is no exception, as we think about him, again, as our primary example. Back in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read here a description of Christ. And of course, as John beholds him here in this vision, uh, he is seeing spiritual things. Starting there in verse 11, John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And notice verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is described as wielding this mighty sword as he fights against the armies of the wicked one. What is that sword, do you think? It's the word of God. Notice in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Hebrew writer says, The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there are various other passages that describe Jesus in this way as a sword coming out of his mouth, referencing the word of God. As we think about ourselves we too are called to wield that same weapon. To use the word of God to accomplish good. Notice Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, he tells them, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We might ask ourselves the question, how well can we wield that sword? Well, it comes through a study of the word to be able to use it correctly. A true hero suits up every day. You watch some of those movies and there's usually some kind of scene along the way where, you know, the heroes are in their jeans and t-shirts and all of a sudden this threat comes about and somebody says, all right, time to suit up, right? And then they get on their suits and they go do battle. Well, believe it or not, we have a suit that we are called to equip every day, an armor of the Lord. We read the description of Christ there in Revelation. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 59 and verse 17, here likewise describing the Lord, notice it says that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation was on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. And so we see these descriptions in describing our Lord. Jesus was always ready to confront error, just as we read there in Matthew 23 as one example. He was not ashamed to stand up for the truth. There was never a moment in his life where he was unprepared, where he was not ready to do battle with the forces of evil. We might think about his time in the wilderness again as an example of that, where Satan came to him in a very weakened state and tried to tempt him. 
tried to get him to do the wrong thing. And he used that sword, didn't he? He used the word of God to defend. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start here in verse 10. Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And I always like to stop right there because it's a good reminder. We are not heroes of our own merit. We never could be. We have no strength in and of ourselves. The strength is found in the Lord, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, he says, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not called to go out here and take physical swords or guns or whatever it is and bend people's wills to doing what God said. That's not what this is about. It's a spiritual warfare. He says... We are against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And notice he says, praying always. Think about how often Jesus prayed. He prayed all the time. In several places, as you read through the gospel accounts, it talks about, and he went away. For the night or for a day or whatever it was to pray to his God, to be alone with God in prayer. And the same admonition is given to us, right? Always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. He says, be watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. He says, and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That was Paul's desire as he requested their prayers. And that's what we should be striving for as well, as we equip this armor every day. The goal should be to boldly proclaim the truth. That's what saves people. And that's what a hero does. A true hero does not give up when things get tough. That's what makes him a hero, right? They were just some Joe Schmo out here on the street. You know, some explosion happens or some scary alien comes down from the sky. Well, they run away, right? That's what you see in all the movies and all the books. And that's what separates them from the hero. The hero is the one that's standing there and everyone else is fleeing and he says, no, I'm going to take this on. All right. That's exactly what Jesus did. 
Things got tough there at the end. People were seeking his life, and that, of course, wasn't anything new by the time that the events of the cross transpired. Remember that he was there in the garden, and he prayed for strength rather than tapping out. Remember in Matthew 26, it describes that as he was being arrested, that we learn from the other gospel account that it was Peter, but here in Matthew, he says, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. In other words, you know, I'm going to defend my Lord, and I'm not going to let this happen. But Jesus put a stop to it. He said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And he asks a very interesting question. He says, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, if I didn't want this to happen, it wouldn't happen. I was there in the beginning with God and with the Spirit. All things exist because of me. Do you really think that I can't stop this? But as he says, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it might happen thus? Or must happen thus? Jesus had a mission and he was determined at all costs to complete the mission. In John 12 verse 27. As he spoke there, again, shortly before all these things transpired, he says, now my soul is troubled. wasn't that he wasn't scared. He was a human being like you and I. Of course he was scared. Of course he trembled. In the garden, his sweat became like great drops of blood because of the anxiety and the sorrow over it all. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, he says, for this purpose, I've come. What an inspiration. You think about something that will inspire you to keep fighting. Whatever monster you're facing in your life. You think about what Jesus did. When things got tough, he didn't just call, call home and say, yeah, I'd really, this is really getting pretty rough. Just, just let's get out of here. No, he didn't do that. He stayed the course. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read the words of the apostle again, Apostle Paul. He says there in verse 8, We are hard pressed on every side, yet we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. In verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, we don't give up, in other words, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. This light affliction, how funny, <laughs> as he's describing all these terrible things, eh, it's just a light affliction. It's just but for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal 
weight of glory. Where's the weight? It's not with the afflictions. It's with the glory, you see, that's being prepared through what we are facing. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Remember what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 12 there, the first four verses or so? Stay focused on Christ, I'm paraphrasing. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Remember Jesus, remember his example. Finally, a true hero loves. That's what being a hero ultimately is all about. It's about love. That's what life is all about. That's what serving God is all about. It's all about love. That's what motivated Jesus to be our hero. It was love. He loved us so much, was so concerned with giving us the opportunity to be saved from the consequences of our own selfish sins that he gave himself, sacrificed himself. Come back here with me to John chapter 10. Let's read the words of Christ together, starting in verse 11. Jesus says there, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. A hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves and flees. And you think about that in the, in the context of what Jesus faced, right? The wolf came. He says if it was anybody else, they would have just ran away. And then the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. He says the hiring flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now here in this context, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's speaking to Jews, right? So he's explaining that this laying down of his life is not just going to be for the Jewish people, but it's going to be for the Gentiles as well. It's going to be for all. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And notice he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I've received from my Father. You want to understand what it means to love someone. If you don't understand what Jesus did, you're never going to truly get it. Jesus defines what it means to love someone. And he didn't just love those who loved him back. And you really think about it, there weren't that many as he was here. And really the ironic thing, when you think about that, is even those that were following him, that were his disciples, even they really weren't with him 
because they were sinners. You think about it that way? He came to save everybody, even those that were following him on the earth. Remember in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, as he hung there on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was all so that even those who were nailing him to that cross, even those who had stabbed him with the spear and wrestled the crown of thorns into his scalp, had beaten him and scourged him, even they could ultimately find forgiveness through that perfect blood that he was shedding. We are called to emulate that. We want to be a true hero. That's that's what it's going to look like. Just like we said earlier, true heroes are good mothers and fathers. True heroes are good husbands and wives. Are good members of the Lord's body looking out for their brothers and sisters who are selfless and thinking of others before themselves. We don't have to go and scale buildings and fight off hordes of evil. It's just a matter of small, selfless acts. That's what makes a hero. Back here in 1 John chapter 3. Start there in verse 10. And John says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was jealous. Verse 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You know, love is central to it all. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Notice verse 16. Because he, speaking of Christ, he laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide? A little children, he says, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Are you a true hero to those that know you in this life? Are you emulating that example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, every day? I hope that if you haven't been, that you will strive to be so that God will be glorified and we can all be together someday in heaven. We'll conclude this morning by reading a oft-quoted passage that again summarizes what makes Jesus so great. Romans 5 and verse 6, it says there, When we were still without strength, 
In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a superhero. This morning, if you're here and you've never taken advantage of that great gift that is offered to all humanity, you've never repented of your sins, never confessed Jesus as your Lord, never been baptized into him, we would encourage you to take those steps this morning. We would love to assist you in those things. If you're here and you need prayers, whether you need to confess something and get back on the right track, or whether you are dealing with difficulty and need encouragement. We would love to assist you in any way that we can. So as we stand now and as we sing the song that our brothers selected, please make your way up to the front and let it be known.